Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Heavenly Shades of Night Are Falling in Hearts in Atlantis, as well as wrap up our discussion of the book. Let's start the show. Bobby Garfield returns to his hometown for the first time since he and his mother moved away 40 years earlier. Sully John's funeral is the nominal reason he is there, but as he visits different areas of town and then encounters Carol Gerber, not Denise Schoonover, we realize that he is reflecting on his relationships with Carol and Ted Brodigan, the magic of the universe, and memory and history. Very nice. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, this is the fifth story in Hearts in Atlantis, although this story is so slight that it's not even really a story as much as it is just sort of a epilogue tacked on at the end that ties up the loose ends of the first four stories and in particular wraps up what was introduced in the first story, Low Men in Yellow Coats. Yes, I kind of think of it like a coda. And really this coda if we want to refer to it as that, is about maybe leaving behind the past as our characters have moved on from not only what happened to them when they were children, but what has happened to them since they were adults. And in turn, the whole idea of what happened to America in the 60s as a result of Vietnam. Yes. Bobby's final act of placing the uh, baseball mitt back under the the grove of trees. He's slightly acknowledging the sort of science fiction element of what he is experiencing here. That there's some sort of weird thing going on that he can't explain and chooses to just let happen. But it's also him relinquishing his past. That baseball glove is a bright, shiny reminder of his childhood, mm-hmm. and he hasn't had that baseball glove since he was a child. And we know the journey that that glove has taken and all the people who have owned it. And it traveled all the way to Vietnam and back and and things like that. And here it is back in Bobby's possession. And the first chance he gets, he sends it away again. That's because he doesn't want to maybe live in the past anymore, or he doesn't want to risk returning to the past in any way. He is, as you say, leaving the past behind. Yep. And actually, out of all the characters in the book, Carol and Bobby have probably moved on from the past a little bit better than the other characters. Mm-hmm. Carol has created a whole new persona and identity after she is presumed dead. And when Bobby wants to talk to her about what happened, she doesn't want to. She's like, no, that's in the past. I don't talk about that anymore. 
And Bobby, when we last saw him, was leading a troubled early adulthood in and out of juvie and, you know, a strange relationship with his mother. But he, we find out, has gotten married and has become a carpenter and has also moved on. And we don't see Bobby dwelling on the events of the past, except when he comes back to town and hits all the old haunts and remembers Oh yeah, there's the restaurant where I, where Ted and I saw the low man, or mm-hmm. there's the place where I got where Carol got beat up, and there's my old apartment, etc. Neither one of them talks about what's happened in the ensuing years and what their lives have been like. Something just occurred to me in terms of the structure here, because at the end of Hearts in Atlantis, that story takes place all in the you know concurrent moments of the college years. And then jumps all the way to the present, where we encounter Pete Riley and Skip Kirk as older men. Skip's in the hospital. It's sort of like a retelling of the of when uh, Stokely Jones is in the hospital when they were in college, or a reflection of that moment. We get a coda built into that story. The story happens, and then there's that, that coda moment. We see where these men have ended up much later in their lives mm. and who they became. And we get a little bit of a taste of what happened in the years between, right? Or why didn't King structure low men in yellow coats that way and have this coda between Bobby and Carol? And I think my answer to that is that King didn't want to give away what happened to Carol. Right. And it would have been too easy for us to just find out that Things turned out okay for Bobby after all, immediately after the events of Ted's abduction. Then Ted sending him the rose petals, right? It's like, oh, all right, now Bobby's a, a 40 year, he's 40 years older and he's doing okay. The end, right? I think having this separate, having it all the way at the end of the book after all the other stories is far more powerful from a storytelling perspective. So, sort of answering my own question with that, but. It's interesting that we had to wait until here for this almost not long enough to be its own story piece. And a lot of it is not just we find out Bobby's okay, or we find out it's really the relationship between Bobby and Carol that we find out is okay, because we have assumed that Carol has died and is no longer alive. And that's what Bobby thinks until what happens with Sully John and specifically the fact that he gets the glove, which has a message from Ted in it. And that's when he thinks, oh, Carol might still be around. And if I go back home, maybe she'll meet me there. It would have lost that power because we might've found out, yeah, Bobby's okay. But I think the more powerful piece is that these two Mm-hmm. people who we last saw as kids and who were obviously had a emotional connection to each other, they still do 30 years down the line. But they still have that emotional connection, even though they've their lives have led different paths. And that's the connection there. And obviously also with the baseball glove too, right? That connection that needs to wind its way through. So I found it very, it, it was a nice wrap around how Ted comes back into the story here. And we still learn that Ted is probably okay, but mm-hmm. maybe due to his breaker powers or something, and Bobby's not sure how to explain it, that he's there and he's able to give them messages and he knew that they would both be together. 
And so he could send this message through the baseball glove to both of them. And somehow brought the elements of the very copy of Lord of the Flies that Carol gave to Pete in 1966. A page from that book is torn out by Ted with an additional note and then shoved in the glove that was taken from 1999 and then transported to Sully John in 1999. It's crazy. And I love it. I, it's like Bobby Garfield's glove is the Infinity Gauntlet or something. Spoilers! Bobby is going through the past, and it's interesting because obviously King is writing this, mm-hmm. but he has Bobby's memory sort of fail. Is this really what happened? I don't remember this exactly. And it's like, hey, King, go back 500 pages in the book and you can find out exactly what that conversation was or wasn't like. But King is obviously aware of the fact that memory is fragile and your memories of how the past was, what the important pieces of the past were, and the things you remember aren't always going to be there. But the emotions and the feelings you have are what's going to carry through. Yeah. And that seems to be where. Carol and Bobby are. They might not get all the details right about what was the man's name on the boardwalk and what were the kids' names who lived in the the twins' names who lived on the street and what was what was Carol's friend's name who saved her and all that. But they'll get enough of the emotions right, that nostalgia. And a lot of that is what this book is about, right? Yeah. King is writing it for the late nineties. It's not a perfect representation of the sixties, which Again, King notes in his author's note at the end of this book, he says, hey, I took some liberties with when the prisoner took place. And there's there's parts that aren't quite right, but this is how I remember it happening. Mm-hmm. And we get that again. And that's this whole nostalgia that fills this this book. In addition to the nostalgia, an important part of this section of the book is magic. I touched on it a moment ago. All of the, the science fiction-y, timey-wimey stuff that is... Ted all day long. He is in another version of Earth, and we as readers of the Dark Tower understand what that means and the implications and the possibilities, uh, but Bobby is completely cut off from that information. However, he's willing to accept that. He's willing to understand that Ted has a kind of magic in him just there. And because of that, and because of his encounters with the the low men, Bobby knows there's more than what most people are aware of in the world. Yep. So he believes. He has no trouble with that belief. Yeah, like this is definitely my glove. I don't know how it got here, but I totally believe that this is it. And this book is the same book. And this is Ted talking to me from across space and time. And I'm totally down with it. Aren't you, Carol? And Carol's a lot more skeptical. Yeah. She's sort of like, ah. And part of that, I wonder if it's because of, like you said, Bobby's encounters with it. Mm -hmm. And so Bobby had very direct, not with the low men necessarily, but with Ted at least, positive memories about this magic. Right. And how it worked. And, you know, his ability to sort of read minds for a little bit and having those connections. Whereas Carol, her primary encounter with the magic has been with Raymond Fiegler. And she realizes that 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 was bad. Like She tells Bobby, I don't want to talk about the past, but she says, you know, it was a really bad cult. I was with a really bad person who did things. And, you know, we talked in a previous episode about how 
she must be freaked out that the fact that she tried calling and saying, this is where the bomb is and the policeman can't find it. And yet it went off anyway. So her encounters with magic has not been as positive. And that's why she seems a little bit more resistant than Bobby is to what's exactly happening here and why is this happening? Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that is immediately apparent when Bobby is doing his walking tour of his old hometown is that he has been kind of looking out for the low men his whole life. Mm. The first thing he does is check that hopscotch grid and look for the the shooting stars and, and crescent moons and stuff like that because I don't think he's ever stopped worrying about getting chased by these low men. They know who he is. He knows they're real. Everything Ted told him about and the signs to look for, that's all valid. That's all a threat that has always been sort of in the back of his mind. And it doesn't seem like it it haunts him in a way that, that he's he's always looking over his shoulder and he's scared to live his life. But I don't think he's ever stopped being conscious of the possibility, especially when he's here where he encountered them. But I, I suspect he's never stopped. I would agree with that entirely. And we're walking close enough to talking about low men and magic that we probably should get into our Dark Tower thinnies, Jay. Yes, thinnies. All of Bobby's reminiscences are a kind of romantic definition of a thinny. Ah. He says, There had been magic that summer. Even at the age of 50, he did not question that, but he no longer knew what sort it had been. Perhaps he had experienced only the Ray Bradbury kind of childhood so many small-town kids had, or at least remembered having, the kind where the real world and that of dreams sometimes overlapped, creating a kind of magic. That's wonderful. And that, that, that little aside clause with the commas, or at least remembered having, yeah. questioning the fact that, did you really have it, or is that just your way that you remember your childhood? I think that's just brilliant writing by King. Yeah, it's a wonderful sentence, but it's also the, this idea that the dream world and the real world overlap and create a kind of magic is almost like Roland's description of a thinny. It's where the two worlds, two versions of Earth, or maybe multiple versions, have rubbed together, or or a thin spot has rubbed its way through, and that's what's thin, and that's why you can pass through there, or that's why horrors sometimes leak through, because of that thinness, that overlap. This version of that description of what a thinny is is so much more romantic. It's so much more positive. It's just like my wonderful memories of childhood tied up in the the Ray Bradbury sort of what a childhood kind of ideally could be. And there but therein underneath is the another way of thinking of what thinking of what a thinny is. Yes. And I almost wonder if it's not just creating a kind of magic, but being aware of the magic that exists in the world. Yes. Which is how Ted describes it early on in the first story. Like, you're kids, so you're going to be able to see the low men, and you're going to have access to this. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's almost like a, a repetition of the very same thing, but there's another line in the section where, I think this is Bobby thinking to himself again, 
and again he felt that breathless sense of magic, that sense of the world as a thin veneer stretched over something else, something both brighter and darker. That's a thinny again, right? I mean, that's that's basically just another way of describing King's multiverse setup here that we have around the Dark Tower. Yes. Just one thing stretched over another thing that we see this in Blind Willie when he's commuting into New York City and he looks through the dirty train window and it's this, he sees this as this horrible version of New York because of the dirt on the window. And that's kind of like one thing stretched over another. You know, maybe if you roll down the window or clean the glass, New York City looks like a sparkling metropolis, but <laughs> but instead he gets this version of what I'm thinking of as is Lud. Right. It's New York City after the apocalypse, just because of a dirty pane of glass. Towards the end of the the story, and we're getting close to when Bobby puts the glove back in the grove of trees, he hears some of the voices of his childhood. Mm -hmm. And it's not that he's making it up because he says, do you hear that too, Carol? And he wants her, does he hear those voices? And we've seen this from book one of the Dark Tower series throughout, right? Where yeah. Roland and a lot of the characters, whether it be Eddie or Susanna or Jake, hear voices from their childhood, from their past, or in their day-to-day -day lives. And Bobby asks Carol if she hears them, and she admits that she sort of does. Mm -hmm. Again, this is sort of her being a little bit more resistant to the magic that he is aware of. But she does admit finally that, yeah, she hears the voices too. Mm -hmm. Again, from a thinny perspective, is this the tower reaching out across the multiverse to seed those voices singing to the two of them? Much like the the roses were singing when they approached uh, Can Can O'Ray. Yeah. And, and that Bobby and Carol are hearing them here. Yeah, I found myself wondering something very similar to that, that we always assumed and talked about how King was just using this as a narrative structure, as, an, as a storytelling technique. He could have Roland, a solitary character in the middle of the desert, have a flashback by hearing the voice of Court in his head. That works wonderfully on its own, but it's so consistent with so many of our major characters in all of these Dark Tower stories that maybe, maybe those voices are more than just a, a narrative technique. Maybe it is the magic of the tower. Maybe it is the voice of the rose. It's the tower reminding our characters of that important thing that their teacher taught them when they were a child, that their friend or their relative or, or whomever, they needed that bit of information. They needed that memory at that time. And the tower was providing it through its magic. And this is a totally new way of thinking about that, of these voices for me, but I love it. Yeah. Like if I were to reread the Dark Tower series again with this idea in my head, I think my experience of all of those flashback moments and character voices uh, would be very different. So one of the more obvious Dark Tower connection is Bobby distinctly remembers Ted saying, it's Ka and Ka's destiny. Mm. Definitely just pulling through the, the high speech over to, to our world and Bob, Bobby's remembrance of that. Yeah. Uh, and another thingy that's a really uh, direct connection is that when we learn that Carol learned how to be good at being dim, mm. this is the most 
obvious connection to Randall Flagg. I mean, his name is Walter O'Dim in various uh, versions of the story and things like that. Clearly, being dim is part of his magic. It's, it's part of his bag of tricks. It's just being dim. And also, the low men themselves and Blind Willie, they're also good at being dim. Yeah. Like, the word dim is not used until Carol utters it, but it's such a perfect adjective for all of these characters. Like, Ted doesn't even think to use that word. As great as his vocabulary is and as, and as well-read as he is, he doesn't call the low men dim. He says they're hard to see, that adults don't look at them, they don't want to see them, they don't want to acknowledge that they're there, but they're dim. I love that. Yeah. It's the perfect word. And we've got Carol, who has learned a little bit of the magic herself, and unfortunately for her, she learned her magic from an evil magician who only wanted to hurt her and others. I guess it's a trick that she's held on to because she was even using it at Silly John's funeral. Nobody yeah. noticed her. She was in the room and no one noticed her. Even Bobby, who had a inkling that she would be there. And was kind of looking for her. Good stuff. So it, it was, it's a nice wrap up because whereas the first story in this collection was very much Dark Tower centric. Mm-hmm. The next three, we sort of had to look and pull from them, and it wasn't quite as obvious. But I think with this story, again, as a coda to the first story, it brings back through a lot of these ideas from the Dark Tower. So why don't we move into our fun stuff, Jay? Let's do it. I love fun stuff. The first fun stuff item I wanted to bring up was the very ending. I love the ending of this story, and therefore I love the ending of this book. I think it's perfect. And that last line is, They sat that way without speaking, and from the radio at their feet, the platters began to sing. Heavenly shades of night are falling, it's twilight time. Out of the mist your voice is calling, tis twilight time. When purple colored curtains mark the end of day, I'll hear you. My dear, at twilight time. I just gave myself goosebumps. Like, <laughs> I know it's not the best thing King's ever written. It's not the best line he's ever written, I should say. But I think the almost persistent repetition of references to the Platter song, Twilight Time, throughout this book, you sort of feel like that's what's going to come on the radio. Bobby takes out this radio when he sits down on the bark bench and it's not playing that song, it's going to get there eventually. But King does such a good job of setting that up that it just it feels comfortable and correct when it does happen. That's all that he says. They're just two old friends who have finally reconnected, and they're just both so happy that they are both still alive and that they don't have any ill will towards each other. They've both made it this far and lived this long. And they're just enjoying this one moment together. We don't know what happens next. They're probably just going to go back to whatever their their lives were before this day. But for this one moment, this one sunset, this one song, they get to be the 11-year-old kids that they were. And I think that's just a great way to end this. I'm not going to crap on your perfect ending because i do see where it's going here but i did find that i did not the way this book ended up 
is not the way I would have preferred it to end up. The fact that they're both married at this point and they're sort of coming together, and I know it's not explicitly said that they're lovers are going to become lovers or anything, but like it does seem a little bit of a strangeness there. And then more importantly, I think, is that we really don't get a lot of Carol's perspective still. This is something that I've complained about for the whole book. Like, oh, we're going to hear Carol's story. It's all been told through these other men. We're going to get Carol's story. And then in this final story, we don't get that. Instead, we get it from Bobby's perspective. And of course, Bobby gets the girl that he wanted from way back when. And that's what we're left with, with, with this sort of romantic reconnection. I can see how it works literarily and what King's doing, but it's still from probably the perspective of time in 2019 as opposed to 1999 or even earlier. It just doesn't ring as true as I wanted it to. I thought you said you weren't going to crap all over the perfect ending I talked about. (laughs) I'm not crapping all over it because I do think that it's structured great. The way that it's the, the code is there. You know, bringing back the platters from the beginning and how important that is in just the terms of the Dark Tower. And I know that's one of the things you've berated me about, about how we should have read this book more chronologically when it was written so that we could have gotten this good sense of Ted and this good sense of how important this song is mm-hmm. so that we can hear how how important it is not only to these two characters, but just sort of across the mythos of the Dark Tower. I was going to bring that point up again that. The chronology of the publications of these books still wouldn't have helped much with that, with the Dark Tower part, because the song comes up in book two. That's true. But it was on our reread of book two when we encountered that song, that King had chosen this song to be the song that Eddie and Susanna fall in love to and make love to for the first time, that for me... This song had become really important as a touchstone song for Stephen King's stories and kind of in my subconscious. So when I saw it again for the first time in our reread of book two for this podcast, I was sort of just blown away by that. King chose this song when he wrote The Drawing of the Three in the 80s. And then many years later, he wrote Hearts in Atlantis and decided to use that song again. So however you want to look at how that that loop of influence goes, it's still an important song. And I think it's that importance is amplified by the fact that it appears in directly in a Dark Tower book and over and over in this book. Another fun stuff item that I had in the list was the line, her death canceled not only the idea of magic, but it seemed to Bobby the very purpose of childhood. Mm. Man, that is so dark. (laughs) At this point, I had kind of forgotten what ultimately career path Bobby had pursued. So when I first read that line, I still was sort of assuming that Bobby had become an author or something, right? So I'm like wondering, how does a person with this kind of damage write for a living? If he is so messed up by Carol's death that he's thinking things like the very purpose of childhood are canceled, like, yeah, he can't write fiction. Like, he can't make money off of his own imagination. Now, of course, we find out a few pages later that 
he actually became a carpenter. And yeah, I can see somebody with that much darkness uh, in their soul. Like, not that you need to be a, a damaged person to be a carpenter, but it made more sense than being a writer because Bobby is messed up. He, in some ways, of all of the adult characters that we now know about that have survived the 60s and lived to tell the tale, Bobby is one of the healthier characters. But he had some very troubled times. He suffered a lot at what he thought was Carl's death. Right. It's kind of not surprising that he did not pursue his career as a as an artist, if you will. I think that was sort of burned out of him in in his in the, the troubles he had in his life. And another item is the Denise Schoonover, nay Carol lives in Poughkeepsie and teaches at Vassar. I don't know why, but it just seems so perfect. It's like if you wanted to, if you looked up the cliche of the Vassar professor, you know, like this is, it's just like everything that Denise has adopted as her identity. Like, it's just like that cliche. It's like she lives in Poughkeepsie. She teaches at Vassar. She teaches math though. That's the one thing that it, it, it seems like she should teach art history or, or creative writing, or something along those lines. Math is what throws me off. Yeah, and for some reason, she thinks that that's a good part of her disguise. Yes. (laughs) Everybody knows that Carol Gerber was terrible at math, and here I am. I am Denise Schoonover, and I teach math, so I couldn't possibly be Carol. Look, here's a quadratic equation. I'm not Carol Gerber. Like, the FBI would just, like, go, oh, yeah. Case closed on that one. You're clearly not Carol Gerber. Some notable Vassar alums include Meryl Streep, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, and Hope Davis, who happens to be the actor who played Liz Garfield in the movie adaptation of Hearts in Atlantis. So, interesting little connection there. Yes. So, my last fun stuff is that this book, when it was published, Never hit number one on the bestsellers list, Mm. which is very unusual for King until you realize that the reason why is if you look at chronologically, this fell in the midst of Harry Potter mania. He was kept from the top slot by uh, good old J.K. Rowling. Yeah. And they're like buddies. I'm sure King's okay with not hitting number one uh, for this book. So that's going to take us into our wrap-up of this book, Jay. So as we've done with some of the other books, let's talk a little bit about how this book was reviewed and its receptions. So its current library thing rankings is 3.66 stars, which is lower than all the Dark Tower books. And the Goodread rankings are 3.82 stars, which again is also lower than all the Dark Tower works. Hmm. It could be that, as we've talked about before, like there's a little bit of self-selection here. If you're going to go out and review a book on one of these sites... You've obviously read it and and have a case for it. And I do think that Dark Tower fans are fairly devoted. And probably, if you like the Dark Tower, you've read all the Dark Tower books and you're going to rank them all. So that could be part of it. Yeah, Still pretty good rankings, better than average. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that Song of Susanna is better than this, according to anybody's rankings. But that's just me. I, on the other hand, am surprised that the Gunslinger is better than this compared to everyone's rankings. Them's fighting words. So any reviews that you came across on this book, Jay? Yeah, there were a couple. Uh, One was from a review site called The Tech, which I hadn't heard of before doing some research for this podcast, but 
the quote that I thought stood out in this review was that these five stories weave perfectly into each other. Reading them as a whole lets one find completeness that cannot be found by reading them one by one. As the lives of the characters unfold, one finally begins to understand what it might have been like to get sucked into the black maelstrom that was Vietnam, and what it might have been like to escape back into the light again. So I thought this particular part of the review really shined a, a bright light on, I think, one of the, the most important underlying themes of this book. And it's not about Ted and his magic. It's not really about the Dark Tower. And it's not really about childhood. I think it's about growing up in the 60s and what it's like to survive that time. Mm. Because America changed. That was a fulcrum point in American culture, was the Vietnam War. There's kind of like the way things were between World War II and Vietnam, and there's everything that's kind of come after. And this book explores the tipping of that fulcrum. It does so through the eyes of various characters at various ages and at various points in their lives, but it's just it just keeps taking a look at that same point. That didn't really fully hit home for me until I started reading this review. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So uh, another review that I found is from Kev's Stephen King Charnel House. And his review of Hearts in Atlantis, um, a line that I wanted to reference from his review is, Hearts in Atlantis then becomes, in part, a guide map for those readers who weren't there. A way of making sense of a time that, King argues, often made no sense at all. Mm. And then he goes on to say, Hearts in Atlantis is a unique, absorbing book. Continuing a new tone set by Bag of Bones and to a lesser extent, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, King's casual voice is enhanced by a calm, literate style that sacrifices none of King's trademark pacing or attention to character, reinforcing his conscious move away from his horror-meister image. In Hearts, King has crafted a statement on a decade and a generation both subtle and nuanced, one that doesn't feel like a statement. So, again, Kev's charnel house here is i think doubling down on that idea that this is king's exploration of this the effect that the vietnam war had on the american psyche and on the american culture and it does so by taking a look at king polishing his technique a little bit here he's taking himself a lot more seriously his the quality of his writing is quite good in this book we've talked about that how like especially low men in yellow coats it's some of the best writing that we've we've encountered and talked about on our podcast, and it is superior to a lot of the writing in many of the Dark Tower books. King's really flexing his skill here in this book, and it shows. One of the things that I found out in looking at some contemporaneous reviews of when this was published is that there seemed to be a a sense that King was going to a next level in his career. And I know you touched on it in one of your earlier ones that he's moving beyond horror and trying to be more literary, even though throughout this book, there is horror. The, the Vietnam scenes are very horrific. Yeah. Um, there, there's still magic. There's still sci-fi fantasy influences, but he's writing in a different manner than he has before that makes it seem more literary. So for instance, Booklist said, this is King's strongest book since Dolores Claiborne, a rich, engaging, deeply moving generational epic. Mm -hmm. 
Publishers Weekly says only the title story rivals his best work. And overall, this volume has a patchy feel and exudes a bittersweet obsession with the past that will please the author's fellow baby boomers. King nails the 60s and its legacy, but may make others grind their teeth. So that one's not quite as positive, but still notes that the title story rivals his best work and that King is still able to to, to nail certain pieces of it. Mm -hmm. Library Journal, Hearts in Atlantis isn't anything like his previous work. It covers new territory in terms of both style and content. This is a spellbinding piece of literature. Highly recommended. Wow. Kirkus does some bashing of the Dark Tower series. Uh, I, I'm not going to quote all hmm. the things that they say then, but if you look at it, they they go on and on about how terrible the Dark Tower series is before saying, a truly mature king does everything right and deserves some kind of literary rosette. His masterpiece. Wow. Which is a bold, bold statement. And then the New York Times, uh, while still a review, much like the New York Times does, they had a, uh, I think another author write this and really starts to dig in deeper and do more than just criticism and says, Hearts and Atlantis is a book about survivor's guilt. The book is messy, five pieces, incommensurate in size and genre. King has written two lengthy prologues and two brief epilogues, but left out the no novel proper. Ouch. Or perhaps he hasn't. And the critic goes on to, to really dive in and to say, this is really King coming to terms with how to deal with Vietnam. And the author posits that King in writing horror was doing so because writing horror was his reaction to Vietnam, so that all of his works up until this point could be seen as a way of dealing with what is the ultimate horror, which is that of Vietnam. And so that's why he writes about dogs attacking kids and vampires and cars that run over people and kids who get buried and then come back to life. And it's only until he got to this book that he realized what the underlying horror was in Vietnam, and that's why he wrote about it specifically. And so that was a positive review in getting to what King was writing about, which I thought was an interesting way of looking at it. So this book was like King's psychiatric breakthrough. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. And then finally, um, in fantasy and science fiction, which those of you who will remember is where the Dark Tower stories were first published that became The Gunslinger, the critic Charles DeLint said, when he's at the top of his form, as he certainly is here, King can be as provocative inspired as, insert your favorite literary author here. Yeah. Again, between masterpiece and top of his form and as inspired as any other writer. And they were thinking about, you know, I think the 90s saw a number of folks dealing with Vietnam and its aftermath. In, in in the fiction, like they had for a while, but it seemed more so towards the end of the century, and King was doing the same here, and people were putting King in that same sort of bucket as some of those other authors. Philip Roth was doing a lot of work around that same time, and I, I had seen articles that compared Stephen King to Pete. To Roth, which Philip Roth, which was, you know, Philip Roth was considered a literary New Yorker, da 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 da, da and, you know, King was the horror guy, and here they've come together. So, again, pretty good reviews. Not enough to get them to number one, thanks to J.K. Rowling, but, yeah. but overall, people, people were very happy with where, where King was going with stuff here. I'm all choked up. Our, our little boy's finally grown up. So, we're not going to rank this like we did uh, in comparison to the, um, to the Dark Tower books, because again, this is different and outside of that. But 
I remember reading this. I look back. I read this in 2003 for the first time and then read it again just this year. I enjoyed the book. I remember really enjoying it when I read it in 2003. I think now that I'm a little bit older and have a different perspective from in my life and the years, it doesn't quite, mostly because of the Carol piece, get to where I want it to be. This obviously fails the Bechdel test in many, many, many ways. Mm-hmm. It It is still a very well-written book, and I do like the themes, and I do like what King has done here. I agree. And if I were to rank the stories within the book, if that's at all interesting, I'll count Low Men in Yellow Coats and Heavenly Shades as a single story, and I will put that at the top. That's That's the best one easily. It's one of the best things Kings have ever written, in my opinion. After that, I would say Harson Atlantis, and then Blind Willie, and then Why We're in Vietnam. I could go either way on Blind Willie and Why We're in Vietnam, whether they're three and four or four and three, but yeah, I, I totally agree with your one and two. I think that those are the standout stories here. Yep. Which brings us to an interesting point as we sort of wrap up here on sort of the overall book themes is that this book, and we might have mentioned this at the beginning of our coverage of this, is titled Hearts in Atlantis. And on the cover, it just says new fiction. Mm. It's not a novel. It's not a short story collection. It's not a collection of novellas like Four Seasons. It's just titled new fiction. And they didn't have to put new fiction on it. They could have just left it off and just had the title on it. Like almost every Stephen King book that's come out since The Shining, the biggest thing on the cover is Stephen King. Yeah, the, the title secondary, and then you know the subtitle of new fiction is is tertiary at best. How do you see this book? Do you see this as a novel? Do you see it as just sort of related stories? And would this would this work alone? And why do you think King was going in this format, Jay? I'm not sure if I have an answer to why he may have decided to do this to begin with. Except to say that at this point in his career, King could kind of do whatever the hell he wants. And as an artist, if you actually have that true freedom that you can do anything you want and it's okay if you fail, it's not like he's not going to have enough money to buy groceries or whatever. He's just improvising at this point in in a way. Like I've never written a book with this structure before. I don't even know if this is a structure that has a definition as a genre of or book type, right? But let me write it in and see what happens. And turns out, I think the it was pretty successful. And one of the things that makes it successful for me is the thrill of internal connections. One of the things that I love about science fiction in general, and one of the, the most fun things about the Dark Tower books and how they connect to so many of Stephen King's other books, are those internal connections. Some of them are subtle. Some of them are are very overt. I have these little squee moments all the time when, you know, there's a common character between two books. It's like when you have those crossover comic book episodes, or you have a TV show where uh, two different unrelated shows and a character shows up, you know, and I think that people dig that stuff. And I know I really like it. Writing this book in this way putting all of these connected stories together with several overlapping characters and and a continuity built upon those connections and having it in a single volume 
it guarantees and it amplifies those internal connections. So it's kind of an experimentation just in that. These stories could, for the most part, stand on their own. They might be less meaningful in some ways if you didn't have the context of the other stories. If you didn't know about the others, you, they could still work. They make sense for the most part. Yeah. But if they were released as separate books and then you're like, oh, look, it's Carol Gerber again. How cool is that? She's in this story and she was in that other story I read. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And I think that that's fun. And I think that's what helps make this a cohesive, successful, artistic thing that, that King has done. Yeah. Again, not to belabor the point, but I also wonder if part of this is to show that King is a more literary writer, that he has that ability to make a larger statement based on short stories that all tie together in some way, that he is a skilled, not only a skilled horror writer, but a skilled craftsman, period, mm -hmm. that he can he can link these together. And it might even have been his publisher who's like, hey, you know, let's go for the literary market and just throw new fiction on this so that this seems like it's more than just, oh, another novel that you would expect from King or another book of short stories, which most of King's books of short stories run the gamut. Yeah. Like if you pick up Skeleton Crew, you, and again, a lot of that is just because of the way that those stories were published for men's magazines in the, in the sixties and seventies, like they run the gamut from straight up horror and sleaze and schlock to more poetic type things, but, or very hard sci-fi, et cetera. And here he is doing something different than just a collection of short stories. It's related stories that work together in that way that goes beyond just a uh, five separate stories. But those key connections that are sometimes subtle and sometimes more than just, hey, look, I can cross things over like I have with my Terry or Castle Rock stories, that there's a deeper underlying meaning here beyond just these characters know each other. but they're all talking about something larger and that larger piece is Vietnam or America in the sixties. Right. And I think that's the other overall theme of this book. And it's something that I touched on a bit earlier when I was talking about the book reviews, but this is about America. It's an exploration of this time of dramatic change and a time of national struggle and sorrow. Somewhere in there, King uses the line as those years between the murder of John Kennedy in Dallas and the murder of John Lennon in New York City. That's where he's drawing the lines around this period of time. He's marking this epoch with incredibly tragic deaths that impacted the American psyche in a way that it changed how this country sees itself. And that's what I think King was really working on here throughout these stories by giving us these varied perspectives, these varied characters, and these varied times or years in that era. And it was like during that time period of between those, those two murders and the aftermath and how the survivor's guilt that you touched on in one of your reviews. It's not just what happened during that era, but what happened after and how did everybody deal with the after, the getting over, the moving on. We saw like Sully John never really did. He was haunted by the Mama-san till the day he died. 
he was always stuck in Vietnam in a way. But we kind of get the idea that despite all the hardships that they had, Bobby and Carol did, and they did successfully move past this point in their, their lives. It wasn't doom for everybody, but it was a pretty tough go for a, the whole country. As I've said before on many occasions, some of my favorite King writing is King writing about his own stuff. His author's note is very short, but he says two very key things in here that relates back to what you just said, Jay. Uh, he goes on about some of the things that he knows are fictional and how he took some author's liberties as far as the campus geography and Harwich is a fictional place and Bridgeport is real, but my version of it is not. And then he says, although it is difficult to believe, the 60s are not fictional. They actually happened. For someone like you and I who were not born in the 60s and obviously have no remembrance, it's we don't need him to say that, but it is interesting that he feels like he has to say that. that it was a different time. And then finally, and I think this is probably the best place to end our our, our piece on Hearts in Atlantis is he says who he thanks. And he says, I also want to thank my wife. Without her, I never would have gotten over. Yeah. So you do get the sense that much like Bobby and Carol have a relationship that helps them move on. King had his wife there with him to help him get over. All right. Well, that wraps up our coverage of Hearts in Atlantis. And that'll be it for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Does my voice sound all creakly again? It's like every time. I got to get into that, that radio voice. So it's the smooth sounds, the soothing sounds of the 70s. K-Billy's. Super sounds of the seventies. I kind of think of it like a coda. C O D A coda. Co 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 coda. It's amazing we have any listeners at all. <laughs> <laughs>